Hello, everyone. Welcome to Personalization Outbreak Podcast number 11. Last week, we talked about the importance of breaking the silence on systemic racism. Now, this week, we'll expand upon that topic to the three P's that are defining the narrative these days, pandemic, protest, and profit. The definition of the three P's is well-defined and articulated by today's guest and my dear friend, Jossie Chisley. Now, Jossie is the president of the Cancer Treatment Centers of America, a comprehensive cancer care network of hospitals and outpatient care centers. Now, Jossie was one of our guest speakers at the 2019 Leadership in the Age of Personalization Summit, and will be returning to our 2020 virtual summit in October. Now, beyond his healthcare accolades that includes Becker's top 25 healthcare executives, Jossie also has an impressive executive credential that includes Chief Strategy Officer at United Healthcare, CEO at Methodist Healthcare, and CEO at Mercy Health Anderson Hospital. Along with our co-host, Professor Scott Lacey, we will discuss the importance of dismantling false narratives to create awareness and start acting as co-creators of an evolutionary agenda for the three Ps, one that is in alignment with today's age of personalization. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Jossie, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Well, thank you, Glenn. It's a pleasure to be here. And boy, what an introduction. Uh, I hope I live up to that in these, <laughs> these next few minutes. So thank you so much for having me. And hello to you as well, Scott. Good to see you. You know, as you well know, in the age of personalization, it's about getting to see and know people as individuals. Now, I Absolutely. understand. Now, I understand that you're a marathon runner. What inspired <laughs> this passion? And how many marathons have you run? <laughs> well, you've certainly done your homework, my friend. Uh, it is so great to start with uh, that, that sort of personalized question. I have run two halves, two half marathons and one full. Uh, the Chicago Marathon, and I was supposed to run another one. Uh, uh, given COVID, it was canceled, uh, the New York Marathon, so I was registered for that. But that being said, I think uh, all of the cliches, all of the uh, the sort of metaphors that you hear with marathons really ring true. You know, it's, it's, a, it's about the journey and not the destination. It's, a, it's certainly a metaphor for life. There's ebbs and flows, et cetera. Uh, but really what attracted me to uh, marathons and just running, I think, was and uh, I, I guess a desire and aptitude to really train my brain, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, to really have that opportunity to make sure that uh, my, my mental state was just as strong as, as, as my legs and my heart is. So I think that's imperative for these days and times, not to, to bring it full, full uh, circle here, but I think there's tremendous opportunity for us to kind of think through strategies, uh, see opportunities in everything, and really grow because of it. Well, there's certainly a lot of growing that we all need to do right now, Jossie. And uh, couldn't I, agree more. I, and I and I agree with you. I mean, uh, this is a journey, but I think we could all agree that the luxury of time is over. I mean, clearly, yes. the the social unrest that we're all experiencing is a defining moment in America. Uh, and as you well know, the healthcare industry, in particular, healthcare providers have made an effort uh, to rise to the occasion. In fact, a recent Modern Healthcare magazine cover story uh, stated, that, uh, stated as follows, we're no longer silent. Healthcare workers and organizations join in the fight against racism. Now, Jossie, as a black president of a highly reputable cancer care institution, is solving for racism the right approach? Now, we don't want to minimize it, but is it the right approach given the broader, more transformational efforts that are required in the healthcare industry today? 
Yeah. So, so Glenn, that's what I love about you, man. You, uh, gloves are off and you go right into it. Uh, and that's, that's, that's the, the whole purpose of, of this discussion. So I really appreciate the question. And I did see the article. I applaud the effort. I think it, uh, certainly got to the core of, um, the, the urgency of the moment. Uh, but I want to make sure that it's just not lip service. So, so first let's examine, if you don't mind the, the, the term, the sentiment of racism. Right. And I think that that has to be uh, further examined and further acknowledged, I think, throughout our society. And I'll get to your, your question um, directly here in a second. And I think from from the sentiment of, of racism, we just at the at the taping of, of this podcast just celebrated July 4th or the 4th of July. Right. And uh, given that 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 was sort of the birth of our nation, uh, but it was deeply rooted in conflict, uh, conspiracy. Uh, uh, being a, being the author was a, almost a hypocrite. I think there was uh, tons of opportunity for us to really examine how that sort of got into place and why we continue to sort of certainly have that, that, that type of conflict. That also being said, I mean, if, if all men are created equal, as the Declaration of Independence says, uh, if everyone has the, the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, then that is something that uh, I think should actually be <laughs> executed upon. Uh, and the author of that, obviously, Thomas Jefferson, owned more than 600 slaves uh, and, and, and had, you know, uh, relations with, with several of them as well. So I think that is something that we have to examine. If you further examine and unpack that, I think particularly in the country, the cause of racism, the cause of racism or the symptom of racism is just that. How do we make sure and ensure that the economic prowess of racism and the benefits of, of racism continues to hold true. So I think there's several sentiments that where um, black people in this country don't necessarily do two things. One is control the narrative and two is actually have the economic impact that we need to ensure that there's level playing field. So let's explore, explore the narrative. So I can remember when, when I was a kid and actually this was even, I think the movie actually even came out before I was actually born. Uh, and that that's the movie Rocky, right? Everybody remembers Rocky. Uh, it was a, it was a, it was a big hit. Uh, I think it was a, certainly a sentiment for us to sort of examine um, the, the, the cultural norms in this country. Uh, and if you, if you recall, Rocky uh, character, fictitious character fought Apollo Creed, right? And many of the things and the themes that were drawn upon that back in the 70s, I think it was 1976 or 77 when the mm -hmm. movie first uh, hit theaters, is that uh, you had this very educated, uh, very uh, bold and emboldened, gregarious uh, uh, Apollo Creed, who was a champion, who was going to fight a normal guy, right? Who was going to fight a normal guy. I think that was rooted in sort of the, the legacy, if you will, of Muhammad Ali. And in the end, through this fictitious sort of character, this fictitious um, plot, Rocky almost defeats the, the actual champion, or at least gets him to a draw, and mm. eventually obviously goes on to defeat him. Now, we know in, in the legacy of, of, of Muhammad Ali and others, that doesn't always happen. But what did happen in that instance is that uh, whoever made that movie, Rocky in the sense and wrote the movie and directed it, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Sylvester Stallone, that the, he was he had the opportunity to control the narrative. So then, then you go in and and sort of uh, go a, a, a level deeper, and you look at the economic impact. And I think that to answer your direct question is where we should put our our actual um, our our prowess, our our power, uh, our focus. Uh, that's what we should be emphasizing more than anything. And it's We want to make sure that we de-emphasize. The, the, the plot of the sort of the anti-racist or the racist and make sure that we're anti-racist and make sure that uh, those that are privileged uh, actually see why they're privileged and we get to a level playing field in term of, terms of the economics. So I do think we're missing the mark a little bit in terms of always trying to solve for racism. Uh, again, being an anti-racist myself, I think there's a lot of economic disparity. There's a ton uh, that we can address in terms of the wealth gap in this country. And uh, I don't think that you're going to change racism overnight. You know, there's not an opportunity for a white person that just hates me because I'm black for us to kind of understand that. Actually, that gets to exactly what you've been sort of talking about, I think, for years in terms of standardization. We've got to get to the personalization, which I think is going to take time. 
But in the interim, let's address, address the economic disparity, which in my mind leads to the healthcare disparities in this country. Uh, a place that's very near and dear to my heart is obviously Chicago, Illinois. Um, there, the, the healthcare disparity or the, the actual life expectancy gap between a four mile radius, the north side of Chicago and the south side of Chicago is literally 33.3 years. That's the largest in this country. But it harkens back to the economic disparity and the lack of access to, to actually uh, wealth in this country. Um, so I think there's certain things that have gone on that we're starting to see that looks like uh, a, a mitigation of racism, uh, gestures, more so symptom, what I call symptoms of, uh, of extremes. And let me give you some examples. So the Confederate flag, right? Um, and we'll take NASCAR in this instance. I love Bubba Watson. I hope I can uh, have the opportunity to meet him one day. I think he's fearless. I think what he's done is led with a genuine purpose and led with his heart. Uh, so I, I think he's, uh, he's, he's an amazing man. That also being said, though, the Confederate flag, that which has been flown since the inception of NASCAR, uh, isn't going to necessarily change that sentiment. And I know that I'm probably not, being a black man, I'm not going to be welcome to any NASCAR parties or rallies in the near term, uh, Confederate flag or not. You also sort of fast forward to what has just occurred with, say, a, a company called Johnson & Johnson, which now makes Band-Aids for black people. Mm -hmm. Again, gesture. It's a symptom of an extreme. Uh, I've been wearing Band-Aids forever. When I cut myself, I put on a Band-Aid, and I don't necessarily think about, hey, that doesn't match my skin. So Johnson & Johnson, while the gesture I, I understand and the sentiment I understand, it's really never going to match who I am as a person. And, and more importantly, it's not going to match my skin. Yeah. The last thing that I'll say is, is in terms of healthcare, um, we are in the midst of a global pandemic, right? And the global pandemic is really affecting the front lines. I could not be more proud to be in this industry uh, right now because the front lines, I think, are showing up and showing through. Uh, and that disparity or, or disparities within healthcare, it's really closed and mitigated itself over time, particularly with all the things that have been going on. That also being said, the gap is widening, widening even more as you look at it and as you go sort of up the ladder in terms of C-suite executives, those that are leading healthcare institutions, in terms of board seats, those that are actually governing healthcare institutions, and then in terms of ownership, those that are actually controlling, owning and knowing what they're actually going to do in terms of those, those healthcare systems. So I think in terms of healthcare, and you mentioned healthcare, we've really got to make sure that healthcare is a horizontal instead of a vertical. What does that mean? We've got to make sure that we're cutting through and utilizing the power of healthcare, being 20% of the GDP, and not just mm -hmm. siloing or siphoning healthcare. Uh, healthcare impacts employers, it impacts payers, it impacts food desert, it impacts the economic disparity that we discussed earlier. And it's just an opportunity for us not to look at healthcare as this fragile industry that if we change things, we might break it. It's an opportunity for us to really so sort of really make sure that we're shaking things up. And I think that's what we need to do now more than ever. Jossie. Yeah. I'm inspired. <laughs> I'm, I'm inspired. So, so, so Jossie, well, well, uh, first of all, thank you. Uh, powerful opening. Um, let me... Let's unpack it a little bit. Let's do it. The narrative. Yes. Extremes. Yes. And healthcare is a horizontal. Yes. So let's first talk just a little bit about um, the narrative. You know, I don't. I think that it's fair to say, and, and I think we know this. I mean, what am I talking about? In the age of standardization, um, it made one thing clear that. Corporate strategies, and you could say that for all large institutions, albeit right. healthcare or higher education, they just weren't designed to serve the mass variances in people. So That's two things have happened in the last <laughs> four months. COVID, social unrest. Yes. I think it's very clear to say that the narrative um, is going and must shift from standardization to personalization. I mean, two highly personal crises that we've all experienced. So yes. when you talk about the narrative, um, I believe that black people, brown people, white people, 
we're all going to be looking to control more of the narrative. We are. Now, now, having said that, is it about controlling the narrative? And this is not a question. It's just something for you to think about and Scott jump in too. Is it about controlling the narrative or is it about recognizing that in our pursuit of unity, we move away from us versus them to we and me? In other words, yeah. this narrative, uh, this narrative that we're all in search of controlling um, is part of what's happening with these extremes, which is the second big point that you made, that oftentimes a narrative is defined by the action that a large institution takes, but when it is in the extremes, are we trying to control the narrative or are actually we tr- are we trying to neutralize uh, issues that we don't know enough about and don't mm. know how to solve them so it's just easier to act in the extreme as you so eloquently pointed out, which then leads us to the last point. Um, when you think of any industry, whether it's healthcare, or corporate America, or those in corporate America or higher education, um, I don't think any of those areas are, are, are verticals anymore. Everything must become a horizontal, which means what? We've reached a point where we need to be more inclusive with each other. That's right. That's so right. I, I just wanted to kind of break this down because the way you articulate it was right on. But what this all means is that we need to get our hands dirty because what's happened is that all these discussions are not new. Is it right. what, 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 what's happened now is they've reached the surface and made everybody aware that everybody's to blame. Everyone. Right. Because why? Uh, you could say that the minorities were viewed as victims and they acted like them rather than what did we do to get our hands dirty? This is why I applaud uh, the, the black community because they've never been afraid to voice what they're thinking and feeling. So I'm going to be quiet for a moment and, and kind of shift this to get a perspective from our, our friend and partner and uh, anthropologist, Dr. Scott Lacey. Where are you, Scott? Um, yeah, 100% with you, man, both you and, and Jesse, man. Um, I like the me to we. And I like the challenge of controlling the narrative. I think one thing that, that worries me about controlling the narrative might be, and I, Jossie, tell me what you think about this. Um, if we go to control the narrative, are we potentially putting ourselves in the danger of recreating um, not the same sort of inequalities, but recreating, regenerating equalities that we haven't quite yet seen or performed, um, let sure. alone sort of keeping some? Um, and, and, but then my thought is, so what is the alternative to controlling the narrative? Cause I think that's, that rings true to me. And my thought would be that, are we, are we maybe looking for a place or a space for us to all connect in which we talk about narratives instead of narrative, that there isn't a singular narrative and that if we try to push towards a singular narrative or controlling the narrative, we're admitting there's a the narrative when in fact, I don't think there is a the narrative. There's a very economically powerful one. There's a very politically powerful one, but it's not the only one. And I think what we're dealing with is the fact that we're trying to figure out ways that that narrative is no longer the narrative, right? And so I'm starting to think of the meta narrative. Maybe, maybe what we're thinking about is not a narrative in which that needs to be controlled, but, but thinking about how do we get our brains and our species together to start thinking about narrative as a plural concept, right? Yes. Um, that that's, that's where we're at. So it, largely then I'll stop after this because I want to hear your thoughts. But if that's where we're at, we're going to go back to a, con- a concept or at least an idea that I think has been percolating at least every time I talk to, to when, a, when, when you when at this, the, most, the previous summit in Huntington Beach, um, this rang true to me then. And it also rings true when I talk to, to Glenn. It's language. We do not have the language yet that we need to talk about this problem. And, 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 and I'm afraid of that because we need to engineer a new language. We need to engineer and, and control, not necessarily the narrative, but, but actually grow our, grow our language, our linguistic sort of spectrum, so that we yes. can truly be in this idea of, of, of 
this personalization era. So I don't know, what do you, what, what, talk to me a little bit about this narratives, meta-narrative versus controlling the narrative. I love this discussion, gentlemen. This is, this is exactly, I think, the discussion we need to be having at this very tender moment in our, in our nation's history. So uh, I, I think a, a couple of things. One is, um, Glenn, I would go harken back to what you just mentioned and uh, what we're dealing with, right? And it's, it's, it's sort of how I'm framing the three P's. It's, it's not only the pandemic, it's obviously the protests, uh, but it's also a loss of profit. And, and I, you know, while the Dow Jones looks really good and sexy on paper, uh, people are struggling, uh, particularly those that are disenfranchised. The second thing that I'll go back to, and it's exactly, Scott, what you were saying, it's, um, it's not necessarily binary. You know, so the, the, the narrative nor the conversation can be binary. What do I mean by that? So I think uh, going back to sort of how this country was, was founded in its inception, that first of all, there was a hollow narrative. The, the hollow narrative was, hey, everyone is created equal, right? Uh, that is hollow. Then it became a false narrative. And I think what we need to do is dismantle, dismantle the false narrative that, hey, the black people in this country are not disenfranchised. They have just as much opportunity as those that, that are privileged. Uh, then we can get, I think, to your point, very cogent point, then we can actually create a narrative that is inclusive, that is together that has integration and touch points uh, for all people, not only in this country, but across the globe. And I know you know that better than anybody being an anthropologist, Scott. So I think that's, that's key. Three other, other things that I'll say in order to get to that sort of that mindset, and it's going to take some time. I think number one, I mean, we've got to solve for something that is systemic, right? Um, and if you break down the word, so systemic racism is, is, is a, phrase that we've heard a lot of, particularly in the media now with the murder of George Floyd and everything else. So systemic racism, let's break down that word, right? Systemic means pervasive. It means ubiquitous. Uh, but it's also it has in the word system. And I think in order to unpack what we're trying to get to and not necessarily control the narrative, but make the narrative inclusive, we got to make sure that we're breaking down those systems. And that gets back to the economic empowerment that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Secondarily, number two, is we've got to really make sure that we're educating, that we're teaching. Uh, that's, that's why I'm so proud of the work that I'm doing, that we're doing at the University of Michigan, my alma mater, and other institutions across the country to really make sure that we're bringing up the next generation, which I know we'll talk about here in a second, uh, the Generation Zs, et cetera, and making sure that they're grounded and rooted, not only in the history, but also where we can go. And I think that's going to be super important. The third and final thing in my mind is we got to create the moment. Um, uh, Glenn sort of alluded to, to, to my personality and, and, and that's what I like to do is create the moment, which I think in then turns creates the platform and the sense of urgency so that we can go faster and get movement, uh, as much as we can. Uh, so I think that not only takes the narrative into play, but all that also gets to action. And as, as you guys know, uh, Stacey Abrams says in her book, my Spellman sister, our time is now. We, have, we, have, we do not have the luxury of time any longer. We've got to make sure that we're moving and not just talking about issues, but actually getting after So, So, Jossie, and, and boy, this is a fun conversation. So let, let, let's step back a moment. Um, when you talk about uh, the economics, right, what, what, what's, in, what's incredible about this moment is, yeah, and everybody talks about the reset, the reboot. Um, sure. When I could just share with you from, from our own research at, at GLLG, I mean, when you have 80% of employees that are, that are in assimilation mode in their workplaces, yes. um, how can we produce any real organic growth? Yes. <laughs> and, and my point is that what standardization has done, it's limited human beings from contributing, period. Um, yep. And with the hope that through, by making us efficiency machines, uh, that we're all going to make more money. And, and what we've learned is that that's just not true. Yeah, there's short-term gains, but there's long-term limitations. But yes. the individual at work 
the commoner. And I'm not talking about executives. Uh, they've sure. realized for years that their ability to contribute to the e economics has limited their ability to truly feel that there's any real purpose for their livelihood. Now, yes. you add these dimensions of difference that, um, that underrepresented groups, people of color, how they have felt, you, you can only imagine what the economic opportunity is now. So Correct. I share this because there's an upside economically that this country has never, has never dealt with like the one we have in front of us now. In other words, yes. this is why this narrative and narratives are so important. Because if we address racism without understanding the economic implications and opportunities association, associated with inclusion, then what we're practicing is substitutional thinking, not evolutionary thinking. So uh, I'm just trying to, to, to help our listeners recognize that as much as we want to serve um, the needs of people of color, this narrative, this moment right now is a time to go back to what Scott said is, let's make sure that we have the right words, the right language to frame the solve so that we don't get caught in what we've been caught up in for years. And that is having the wrong message, the wrong language, and thus we end up solving for the wrong things. And then it's the same thing over and over again. So I just share this because for someone like you, Jossie, uh, a, a very distinguished black president, and by the way, you've been one for quite a while now. What's the message that you're sending at CTCA. I mean, how are you trying to, at this point, just create enough awareness to find proper alignment so that there is an understanding of what we should really be solving for? I know it's a loaded question, but I think it's a question <laughs> that everybody wants to hear from you. Well, well, thank you. And I, I, I couldn't agree more with, with your sentiment about uh, the narratives. And this is, again, just a, a poignant uh, conversation. Um, you know, I, I think a couple of things. So, so I, if, if we're to create, I think, and, and really take advantage of us living through history and we, that's what we're doing right now, given the, the, the three P's we're living through a pandemic, we're living through protests and, um, social unrest. We're living through a loss of profit with, with everything that's going on. I think there's, there's tremendous opportunity for us to really take this moment by, by the, by the horns and ensure that we are listing, uh, outlining, delineating what the, the grievances are and how do we solve for them? Um, we really got to make sure that we're solving for something and not just talking about it. Uh, and that I think is, is what we're, we're needing to do in conjunction with, uh, taking action at the same time. So, so, so John, excuse what, me, I, I need to jump in real sure. quick because if, 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 forgive me out of all due respect, what no, should we be solving for? Yes, we should be solving for the economic piece of healthcare. So, so there's a couple of grievances, the immediate sort of access issues. Uh, and if those that have access, access to food, access to quality healthcare, access to uh, um, housing, uh, affordable housing, access to things that we know that have been uh, disparities in this country for a very long time, therein lies a, an opportunity to uh, mitigate that wealth gap. If you recall, and, 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 and I know we talked about this, Glenn, the, the economic wealth gap between white people and black people in this country over just over the last 10 years has increased 200%, 200%. Uh, so we, while the, the, the sort of black people are still living just above the FPL, the federal uh, poverty line, the, the economic average for a white family is almost $200,000. That is a big disparity, and I think it's something that we need to address through things like uh, those that are in power, those that have opportunity to make decisions, those that can close those gaps and in, in access. That's exactly what we need to be talking about, and that that requires that requires I think a cultural shift and econ and economic representation as as well as board representation, governance representation on a lot of these things and companies that we're actually working for and improving upon. 
So, so that's number one. Number two, I think we've got to make sure that all of the big employers, you know, those that have access to healthcare, those that are driving decision, economic decisions in this country, those that are part of the Dow, really have a, a, an opportunity to uh, ensure that they are making their voices heard through their wallets. So we know that um, there's a lot of, there's oftentimes not a lot of action until these CEOs, uh, these governors, board of governors or board of directors are really hitting the wallet. Case in point, now we're actually talking about finally changing after, uh, since its inception in 1933, changing the team in Washington's name, namesake. But I don't think that that would have occurred unless, you know, big corporations like Nike and others really came to the forefront and said, and FedEx, and really said, hey, this is what we're going to do to change it. That's the kind of economic empowerment that we need. They're not solving for racism first. They're first solving for their wallets and economic empowerment. So that's number two. Number three, and, and, and finally, I think from our perspective, is we really want to focus on what we can do right now. So there are certain things that are provisions within my own industry that are set up for us to actually succeed. I think the ACA, regardless of your politic, the Affordable Care Act is one. We can open the exchanges even wider, even wider on Obamacare and make sure that people get the affordable uh, health care in this country that they need instead of narrowing that. I think these are all things that we can do immediately, talk about, but actually put into action, put on the paper, and list our grievances and put some tactics around. So, Jossie, again, given your role uh, at CTCA and as a, a black as president, what movement can you start in healthcare to begin addressing and in taking strategic actions on at least one of those three things? I mean, the, the most obvious one to me seems um, clearly access, but what you were, at least as I interpret it, we could only create more access when we've had the right people at the table who can govern and influence right. decisions that can drive access. So okay. how do we, what's the first thing, what's the first part of this movement that you can create about, and, and what would be the first thing that you would want uh, that movement to, to truly address in healthcare? Yeah, so I think I think the first thing and and um, the very first thing that we have to do, and it's it's what I'm working on, and I'm not sure that I've been successful at it, but it's it's certainly what I've been working on over the last year within CTCA and even a broader landscape within the healthcare industry is just creating awareness. You know, it goes back to to the education piece. Uh, I think in order to do that, and it's really tough for leaders to do that nowadays because before you create the awareness you got to become vulnerable to yourself and kind of look at yourself in the mirror and say, okay, what are my strengths? Even more so, what are my weaknesses and what am I afraid to say? Hmm. Uh, so this is just as an example, this past uh, uh, celebration, uh, mainly in the black community, but it's getting much more pervasive is a, is a holiday called Juneteenth. And what I called for uh, during this sort of uh, a conversation, a national conversation on race uh, during within CTCA for 70, probably 70 of our top executives, uh, I called for a national number one conversation, but also a national reflection on that day, on Juneteenth, which is June 19th. It is a celebration of when the last slaves within uh, Texas were actually told that they were free. So that's an opportunity for us to kind of look at that. And why is that important to the black community? Why is that important that what do we do certain things or why do we do certain things on that special and, and a very historic day? And how is it uh, uh, disproportionately unequal to what we just celebrated in July 4th. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think that, that, that awareness is very, very key. Uh, and I think we got to talk about it no matter how uncomfortable it is. Mm -hmm. The other thing, healthcare now more than ever, although it's been treated and, and we've acted like a cottage industry now more than ever is a time for us to connect to big employers is a time for us to drive the agenda even more. Um, is for a time for us to say, hey, look, specifically with a, a, a despicable disease like cancer, is to really say, okay, cancer costs a lot. And heaven forbid, if you're ever diagnosed with it, it not only it touches your mind, your heart, obviously your body and physical strength, but it also touches your wallet. How can we influence that? 
how can we influence that? It's particularly for those that are disenfranchised because mm. all people we know get cancer, but for, for, for a very disproportionate share, those that are in the black community die from it. The same thing, the same thing that goes on with COVID. We started to address that. So where we represent black people represent about 13% of this, of the population within America, we account for 31% of the diagnosed COVID related um, uh, sort of diseases. And then we represent 60, nearly 60% of the deaths. That is a big, big disproportion. And I think that's what we need to start talking about. How do we justify, how do we rectify that? Those are the kinds of questions that we're starting to ask, or ask ourselves as a leadership team, as a board. The final thing that I'll say is the board. The governance representation uh, within CTCA, we've made it a very concerted effort to recruit uh, a ton of new board members that are not only diverse in uh, their sort of complement in race and ethnicity, but also diverse in their thoughts. Uh, so we've welcomed uh, several new board members, which I think is really advancing our conversation and making that vulnerability just a little bit easier. Uh, so I'm super excited about the, the future. Uh, we have the opportunity, I think, to help, help shape this a little bit differently, but it does all, uh, always start with us. Well, I, I hope uh, that hundreds of thousands of people listen to this because I think that you're the one that can drive this movement. I think that you... Uh, have the opportunity to be out in front and to rattle the industry and not just rattle the healthcare industry to listen and perhaps approach this with a strategic intent that aligns representation with economics, but to recognize that this is all leading healthcare down a path where uh, how they view their patients, how they view research, how they view the communities that they serve completely differently than they did in the past. Now, I recognize that issues like genomics uh, have been well on their way, um, but I think this is an an opportunity for us to go deeper. And because we need to recognize that just around the corner, Jossie, uh, are these millennials and Gen Zs that represent the most culturally and ethnically diverse populations ever. Um, In in fact, combined, uh, these two generations I already have more people than ex-boomers in the silent generation. So what can we do to start recognizing that it's not just solving for our generations, but for this next generation, it's truly going to be responsible for redefining the future of healthcare. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think it goes back to what Scott is espousing, you know, sort of getting to uh, a more inclusive, holistic approach. Think of it more or so as a circle versus, you know, a hierarchy. You know, we've got to make sure from an inclusion standpoint that we're hearing everybody. Um, I'm a big believer in same time, same information, same table. So bring everybody to the table at the same time to really understand thought processes and get that diversity of thought as quickly as we can. Uh, I realize that I'm getting older and I'm, I'm, I'm not quite a, a, you look a, good. A, you look young, Josh. OG in healthcare. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but one of the, the, the great joys in my life are the mentees that I've been able to, uh, to work with, uh, our, our sort of the younger generation who are Z and, um, Gen Xers and others. That's an opportunity for us to be really influenced and make sure that, that you know, we're all sort of enjoying the fruits of our labor. And it's not again, binary. So just because one person is in power doesn't mean another person has to be put down. Uh, a rising tide raises all ships, in my opinion. So we really got to make sure that there's opportunity for us all to really not only hear each other, but also be inclusive and push the, the envelope and the agenda forward in a very inclusive way. And I think we can do that. So let's just make a declaration right now. And, and, and I'll make it. Um, and so, look, as you well know, uh, Jossie, and for our listeners, Jossie, is going to be uh, one of our featured speakers at the Leadership in the Age of Personalization Summit that will be uh, forward to uh, hosted by uh, Fairfield in partnership with GLLG October 28th uh, through the 30th. Here's the declaration. I'd like to see leaders like you, Jossie, and I'm looking at you too, Scott, um, <laughs> as, I, as I look at myself. Um, let's make a declaration to have at least a thousand Millennials and Gen Z involved in that conversation. You know, we often, have, we often have summits uh, that focus on people at the top and those of influence. 
But I think that we need to start opening doors and pathways to introduce our future leaders to the issues that they need to be preparing for themselves now. And I think that really falls in your camp, Scott, because without higher education being an enabler to bringing these next generations into the fold of issues that are big and heavy, we need to prepare them uh, for conversations like this because we just can't allow standardized thinking of the past to be, to be the driver of all this change. We need those from these up and coming generations that recognize and honor and value the importance of personalization to influence the future just as much as we're trying to. Scott? Yeah, I tell you what, um, I have an idea about how this can not happen. I don't have the solution, but I have an idea about the the, the tack we need to take or we should think about taking. Um, And so I'm going to throw it out there and I'm going to throw it to both of you to see how you can help me with it because I'm not quite there. Um, But I'm going back to the three Ps and I'm going back to language and I'm going back to the trouble, the troubling persistence of our framework of the narrative. And, 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 and how powerful the narrative is. And we still keep on, we still keep defending it even when we're fighting it. We've been neutralized if we fight the narrative, right? So, yeah. so for me, when I'm talking about language, I think the three Ps is what, thank you, Josie, you got me on this one with the three Ps because that's when I started to think about the narrative. So the pandemic part is kind of still confusing to me in terms of how this goes, but protest and profit. Protest isn't protest. By the grand narrative, the protest has been neutralized already because it's called protest. And protest means rabble rousing, maybe a little bit of energy, and maybe a little bit of systematic band-aid color changes, Crayola box skin color changes. That's what, that's what protest, as we know it in the narrative, gets us. But it's not that. Protest is alignment right? We need new language. We need to be careful about our language because the language carries so much of the past in ways that we don't even recognize it in our own selves, even if we're carrying forth a new message. So, so protest to me is not protest. It's alignment. It's not realignment. It is alignment. It's been there, but we need to come together. We're not sitting here complaining. We're aligning. And that's the power. That's why protest can be powerful and has been powerful in the past, at least from my view. I'm also going to look at profit, and that's why I'm going to ask the most help from both of you, because that's definitely not something that I'm uh, into as an anthropologist, right? Um, Profit is profit, and it will, in in the standardized approach towards profit, we've already lost the game and we've been neutralized as soon as we use that term. When we say it's the most important term for us to think about, and I agree, we need to work on that economic layer because that's the one where the, that's the one with the most juice for making something happen. So what is profit? If we refuse or, or, or the opportunity to redefine profit at this moment, we've mm-hmm. lost. Profit isn't putting some in and getting more out economically. And economics isn't money. Money doesn't even exist. Money is a symbol for things that we just agree right. that we'll just pretend is there. So That's we have right. to be very careful with our language. So I'm throwing this right back to you. Uh, profit to me is well-being. Putting something in and getting well-being out, right? It's not economic. It can have economic dimensions, but that is by human economics. So I want to make this about human profit and not economic profit, because if we're not careful with, re, with our base terms, we are doing nothing but neutralizing ourselves and empowering a narrative we never meant to help. Yeah, I'll, I'll chime in here, Scott. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very good and steadfast, I think, calibration for us all to kind of think mm-hmm. about, because words have power. They have really, really tremendous power. I, it, it harkens back to me what you just said, um, in terms of the economics of all this, the profit of all this, because that does imply money, which is not something that I'm even necessarily thinking about. I, I put it in terms of, of value, human dignity, uh, yeah. human respect. Those are the kinds of things that I think will bring us back to your first point, which is just getting that alignment. And that's what has been so far, I think, misaligned for so many years that the further you get misaligned, the more it compounds over time. 
uh, and it keeps the privileged privileged. So I think there's tremendous, tremendous opportunity for us to get that calibration back, back intact. And I think once we do all of that, you'll see, you'll actually get to see a lot of this thing, these things start to get in motion. And that sense of urgency, that platform, that moment will be upon us and we'll all drive it together. You know, I'll, I'll add to this as we uh, start wrapping up here is when you talk about alignment and language and uh, profit and, you know, the three P's, I love your three P's, uh, Jossie. I think this goes back to, you know, why we're even having this conversation. And that is standardization can no longer scale in its current form. And it's being met with this tremendous force of personalization, and it doesn't even know what to do with it. This is the moment. I agree. Uh, this is the moment to recalibrate what words mean, what strategies uh, we're taking, and what they mean. Uh, it's a moment for us to begin to recognize that we need both standardization and personalization, but in a more modern form, that we have to stop, these forces need to stop fighting each other and they need to start recognizing that they need each other. And my concern at this time, as they, uh, as these forces play out, they, they need to stop being in the extremes where they're at right now, because that's when progress really slows down. And we need to find that middle ground. And what that means is that we need to change behavior. We need to think differently about leadership. We need to think uh, us more as human. Uh, we need to start recognizing the value of individual contribution. We need to change and revisit all the metrics because this goes back to the, the broader systemic issues in which this country was founded on, in which large institutions were grounded on, and this is the opportunity, now that the moment is called, to examine all of these things. But what does that require? Requires us, again, to get our hands dirty. And if we don't get them dirty, I'm telling you this right now, it's never going to change. So I just share this because I'm fortunate enough to be able to speak to two uh, very influential people uh, on this podcast right now. And you guys have more influence than you think you do uh, to mobilize discussions in higher education and in healthcare. I'm just here trying to be a bridge of wisdom to, to get people to recognize that the actions that they can take are just to examine what got us here and what's necessary to get us there. Jossie, any closing comments as we wrap up? Well, that, that is so powerful, Glenn, and, and you are certainly advancing and pushing us and propelling us forward. So thank you for, for sharing. I, I really do appreciate that. Um, I, I'll quote my, my grandfather as, as, as we close. He would always say, don't sit down to the feast unless you're willing to starve. And that's what you're talking about is getting our hands dirty. I think, I think we've all got to be willing to roll up our, our respective sleeves and get our hands dirty and start to work for the change that we want to become. Really three things to, to, to bear. The black professionals, the disenfranchised professionals, I want to make sure that we're galvanizing them as quickly and, as, and mobilizing them as quickly as we can. I, know, I realize that there might be some, some, uh, some language. There might be some, some anxiety. There might be a, a, a hint of tiredness. But now more than ever do we need to really combine and come together uh, as one and start to think through these things and get to tactical uh, solutions. Two is the disenfranchised people in this, in this ent entire country. It's not just black folk, but it's, it's, it, it spans across the spectrum. We really now with the pandemic uh, certainly surging, uh, still in the, I think the first wave, I think there's tremendous opportunity for us to really start to study, study the platform. The, the, as, as, as we went back or go back to, to Scott's comments, really understand those disparities because again, not only the words have meaning and power, but also the, the actual disparity that exists has even more power. And then I think lastly is, is one thing that I'll say that, that I just want to make sure that we're, we're mindful of. And I know we, the, the, the three of us on the, on the line here understand this, but it was Martin Luther King that really, really tried to advance the discussion about the need for a civil rights act, uh, a, a, a bill that was signed by uh, LBJ 
uh, back in 64. And then immediately after that, almost immediately, a year after that, um, it probably felt like a lifetime to those that were fighting for it. The Voting Acts right was actually signed into law by OBJ as well. That didn't open up, up things just for black people. That opened up everything for immigrants. And we saw even more immigrants surge into this country because they felt that they could have a voice in America. So I say that to say, just to remind us, if we all have a voice, if we're all working toward the same thing, if we're all marching together and not necessarily protesting, but getting into that alignment that Scott speaks about, think about the tremendous opportunity before us. Powerful, Jossie. You know, it's interesting when you really, if we try to simplify uh, this as best as we can, um, I'll just remind our, our listeners that uh, what we all really want is respect. That's dignity, right. Dignity, an opportunity to be human, an opportunity to reflect our individual capacities and capabilities and um, not allow the systems to define those things for us, but give us an opportunity to define them. Scott, any last comments? I, I'm just going to say, man, uh, it's the proverb from the village, the first proverb I was taught by the elders, and it's one finger can't lift a stone. And, and that's what we need to think about today. We need to, each one of us, um, as, as much sort of influence that we might be able to put into our own little neighborhoods and, and in terms of where, you know, education, healthcare, et cetera, um, we need to remember none of us is the solution. None of us has the best idea. None of us has the path forward, but we all do. Yes. Love it. Jossie, Scott, thank you. And Jossie, listen, I know you're extraordinarily busy, and I want to thank you because I know that your, your words have inspired uh, us today. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure that they will equally inspire uh, or have inspired and will inspire our listeners. And I just want to thank you for taking the time. You're, you're a tremendous leader. Thank you. No, thank, thank you. you. Thank you thank both. You so really much. appreciate it. Appreciate so much. Take care, guys. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.